Section 28 of the Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M.P. Hill. Section 28. Development of Doctrine. Objection. The Catholic Church is continually introducing new dogmas. Such innovations are not within the competence of the Church, which received the deposit of the faith to be transmitted unchanged to the end of time. Papal infallibility became an article of faith only 30 or 40 years ago. Did the Vatican Council receive a new revelation on the subject? The answer. The Vatican Council received no new revelation, for none was needed. No change was made in the body of doctrine deposited with the apostles. The decree of infallibility was but an interpretation of a doctrine already found in Scripture. As a historical fact, the primacy and infallibility of the successor of Peter had been recognized in practice throughout the history of the Church. It was the one bond of union between the various parts of the Church, communion with the See of Peter being regarded as the touchstone of orthodoxy. See the Pope 2 and 3. All that was lacking was an explicit definition, which, however, was not necessary until controversy made it so. When the prerogative of the Holy See was seriously called in question, the Church deemed it necessary to define the true and full meaning of the primacy, which had always been recognized. The faith was not changed, but explained. But there is this difference in the situation between now and before the Vatican Council, that now, after the explicit definition of papal infallibility, to deny the doctrine would be plainly and directly heretical, whereas before the definition one might make bold to deny it because it was not explicitly defined, and might therefore be regarded as not taught by the Church. Today there is no excuse for not regarding the primacy as implying infallibility. The doctrine of infallibility is a fair sample of a whole class of Catholic teachings which even to fair-minded persons outside the Church seem to be innovations. No declaration of the meaning and import of an old truth can be an innovation on the part of a Church which is appointed the custodian and interpreter of divine revelation. What seems to be a new doctrine is not new, except in so far as it is an explicit declaration of what was contained in an older doctrine. In this sense, there can be growth and development in Catholic doctrine. The deposit of the faith entrusted to the apostles and their successors must not be compared to a deposit of material treasure, which is to be locked away in a casket and to be inspected only occasionally by privileged eyes. The truths of revelation were to be received into human minds. They were to be subjects of meditation and were to grow into the thought and feeling of those who were to receive them. No large and comprehensive idea can remain wholly undeveloped. Reflections will necessarily make it yield more of its meaning than it did at its first enunciation. Such development of doctrine may, of course, lead to error, and as men's reflections differ, they may sometimes result in contradictions. Hence, if there were no criterion by which to test the correctness of individual reflection and deduction, Christian teaching would degenerate into a medley of conflicting opinions. But a criterion there surely is, and the criterion is the ruling of a divinely constituted authority residing in the Church. There are times when the Church is obliged to exercise such authority and declare, as regards particular propositions, what must and what must not be accepted as truth. It must formulate the truth, and the truth thus formulated is a dogma of the Catholic faith. It is new only as regards its newly developed form. The position we have been defending has been attacked in our day by a school of critics which maintains that at least in the early centuries, so-called developments of doctrine were not developments at all, but importations of foreign elements, the pure stream of Christian doctrine being contaminated by an infusion of Greek philosophy. Even the fourth gospel, we are told, which has been attributed to St. John, shows in its opening sentences the impress of Greco-Oriental speculation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, we are reminded, was the Logos of Philo Judaeus, a philosopher who made a sorry attempt to amalgamate his own Jewish beliefs with the pagan philosophy of Greece. 
The charge thus brought against early Christian teaching is more superficial than might appear from the array of learning by which it is sometimes supported. Critics holding this view are misled as to the substance by confining their attention to the form. The truth is that when Christianity came into contact with Greek philosophy and was obliged to meet it on its own ground, it used the language of philosophy to express Christian ideas. Frequently, when a Christian idea found what was more or less a counterpart of itself in any teaching of pagan philosophy, the pagan notion was first purged of what was false and then, in its new form, adopted as Christian truth. The old term was thus used with a new meaning. It was thus that Christianity was made intelligible and acceptable to those whose thoughts had been running in the grooves of pagan speculation. Thus it was that the logos of the later Greek philosophy was given its true meaning by St. John in the first sentences of his gospel. The word that was made flesh, the word that was with God and was God, was the real logos, of whom only a distorted conception was familiar to Greek speculation. Among the Greco-Judaic philosophers and among the Gnostics, the Monarchians, and others, the term conveyed the idea of a mediator, who was vaguely conceived as personal and divine, and yet not regarded as one in nature and identical in substance with the deity. With this being the word of St. John could never be justly confounded. The difference between the two is emphasized in the very passage in which the term is used, and the word was God. It is true that nowhere else in the sacred writings is the same truth set forth in such plain and explicit language, but that only proves that nowhere else was it natural or to be expected that such language should be employed. St. John wrote from out an environment that was rife with theories concerning the Logos, and what more natural than that he would announce the true Logos? The case of St. John's Gospel is typical of the use made of pagan philosophy by the early Christian writers. There was always a standard of doctrine derived from scripture and tradition, which enabled those writers to separate the chaff from the grain. If they used pagan language and modes of thought, they were not indiscriminating in their use of them. We are thinking, of course, of those who, in the judgment of the church, were orthodox. The very distinction of orthodox and heretical is sufficient to show that the church was not helplessly exposed to the inroads of a false philosophy. The principle on which that distinction was based was that any philosophical opinion not in agreement with scripture and sound tradition was to be rejected. Dogmatic formulae were framed with an eye to what had been taught from the beginning. This indeed is the most conspicuous feature of the teaching of the fathers in the councils. This principle was the very touchstone of orthodoxy. No serious attempt has been made to prove that any elements of Greek thought built into the fabric of Catholic teaching is at variance with scriptural or apostolical doctrine. Writers on the subject are often too much occupied with the external phenomena to penetrate the substance. See dogmas. End of section 28. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.